Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, innovators, and sometimes people with just fascinating stories. Today, we're talking with journalist Philip Elliott. He is a Washington correspondent for Time, and Phil also writes a five-day-a-week newsletter for Time called The D.C. Brief. He gives us a briefing on all things politics and what's happening inside Washington, D.C. Phil, we're coming to the end of the calendar year. We're still a year out from the 2024 election. But between now and January 1, what should we be looking at as as the average citizen uh, on the political landscape? What should be important to us? The thing I'm watching for, and it, it's um, entirely a selfish um, survey, is whether the Republican field decides to continue to stay as plentiful as it is, or if someone or someone's decide to start consolidating support. I mean, all of these, a lot of these candidates are still polling in the single digits. Most are fading. And we'll get to that in a minute. And whether someone emerges as the lead alternative to Donald Trump. I remember covering 2016 and chasing running around Indiana of all places as everyone was trying to figure out, okay, this is like Ted Cruz's last stand. Can he knock off Trump and deny him the nomination? But it was so late in the calendar that it was impossible. We haven't started the calendar yet, and there is an opportunity for someone, say Nikki Haley, maybe Ron DeSantis, maybe Chris Christie, who knows, to emerge as the viable anti-Trump. The challenge here, though, is Trump is still polling at a majority support in in every one of these early states. Um, Nikki Haley is rising, the former UN ambassador, governor of South Carolina, but She's still, you know, 30, 40 points behind Donald Trump. Well, let's talk about that in a moment. Iowa is first up, uh, and uh, Trump has been in the lead there forever. But, you know, there seems to be some undercurrents with evangelicals and other people. Um, is, Is his lead solid in Iowa before we even get to New Hampshire? No one's lead is ever solid in Iowa. And that is the thing we love about Iowa. These are individuals that we, you know, anecdotally, the last couple cycles, all of us go to dinner the Saturday night before the Iowa caucuses, and we're all half checked out of every dinner conversation we're in (laughs) because we're looking for the last Des Moines Register poll. Ann Seltzer is the queen pollster out there, and her poll is the only one that accurately that is ever remotely accurate. And the Des Moines Register poll in the Sunday edition of the Des Moines Register, right before the Iowa caucuses, it is it is agenda setting um, because it's the only one that captures how late breaking caucus goers are thinking. Um, Iowans are famously fickle and we love that about them, that they wanna see every candidate three, four, even five times. And the candidates typically Donald Trump being the exception, typically um, give them what they want and will answer questions for hours on end in high school gymnasiums, church auditoriums. Um, Local diners, uh, you see that a lot. 
it, it's 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 kitschy, but it is iconoclast for a reason. Um, Iowans are not going to follow national polls necessarily. Um, Donald Trump did not win the Iowa caucuses last time. Ted Cruz did that. Um, ben Carson had a better than expected showing there. I mean, it's Iowa. Iowa is going to do. Iowa's going to Iowa. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to watch, um, especially if they can, if they have a viable underdog that they can support. Keep in mind that's what happened with Barack Obama. Hillary Clinton came in third in two thousand eight out there. Um, that it was just the hustle and the grit and grind um, do get rewarded in Iowa, and that opens an op- that opens a door for someone like Nikki Haley, perhaps. Um, I, I think Ron DeSantis is a closer fit in terms of profile. Keep in mind, Mitt Romney um, got got crushed in Iowa um, because they did not see him as sufficiently Christian. Um, Nikki Haley, um, who is a Christian but is from a family that is that were practicing Sikhs, um, there there is a um, there is a hesitancy towards someone who's the other. In the Iowa, cloud. which the could cloud. be a problem for her. And it did open the door for someone like Mike Huckabee in 2008. Um, George W. Bush famously um, had connections there, um, connectivity through his compassionate conservatism um, and his born, ag- born again um, pitch to voters. Well, the next one up then is New Hampshire. And it seems to me as a layperson and outsider that that's where Nikki Haley has been spending a, a lot of time and a lot of money. Right. Nikki Haley could be the sweet spot in New Hampshire. I mean, I, I spent a year living in Concord, New Hampshire in 2007, ahead of the 2008 primary up there. Um, and I, New Hampshire will not ratify anything that comes out of Iowa. There's just a cranky Yankee mentality up there that they're just going to do their own thing and they're not going to be told what what they they will aggressively reject whatever Iowa does. Nikki Haley has been laying the groundwork up there. Um, the governor's endorsement is still on the table. Governor Chris Sununu, who thought about running himself, um, right. he's a member of political royalty, um, brother of a senator, son of a governor. Um, I mean, it, it's the Sununu brand up there does matter. A Sununu endorsement could help Nikki Haley mightily. Um, but Chris Christie is also playing in New Hampshire, and he had a phenomenal campaign organization up there when he ran in 2016. He's back for vengeance now. Um, that said, there's a certain, you know, poke your finger in the eye of your enemy mentality up there that does lay the groundwork for Donald Trump. Um, Trump could have a... It, it could end up being impossible to deny Donald Trump the win there. And unlike Democrats, the Republican nominating calendar is a winner-take-all. So second place gets you no credit. Um, and that's it's really a system that benefits Trump. It wasn't designed for him. This is this predates Trump. But it is a there is no proportional delegates here. It is you win, you walk away with everything. So if... Trump wins Iowa and wins New Hampshire. It's over. I mean, we, we then had we, we wind up in South Carolina where Nikki Haley has. I mean, she she has been running there for twenty years and has only lost one um, political race in her career. Um, she's never lost a real race in her career there, and that, that's a Southern evangelical abode. I mean, I I did watch Trump get booed. Um, at yeah, a, at, at, at a the South football Carolina game. football game, right? Yeah, which which was unexpected. And um, let me tell you, the uh, Trump's rivals were very quick to race each other to make sure that every reporter had seen the video of that um, chastening. And it was very fun to um, just imagine that this is still a competitive race when all objective measures um, indicate Trump is heading towards renomination, a third in a row. Um, 
and we'll be heading into a general election against Joe Biden, a contest that no one, and I mean no one, is looking forward to. Living outside of Boston now and and watching Boston media, uh, Nikki Haley's ads are everywhere, uh, obviously targeted towards New Hampshire. Uh, But she's spending a ton of money. Yeah, she and her affiliated super PAC are very well-funded. They are getting more well-funded by the day. Um, you're, you're watching a lot of Wall Street Republicans um, come around to the realization that she might be the vehicle by which they can derail a, um, a second Trump term. Um, and she, she's, doing the, she's doing the right things. She's lining up the right supporters. She's got the machinery behind her. Um, this is a very successful and strategic thinker. Um, the question is whether New Hampshire is open to that. I mean, there is a latent sexism in New Hampshire that it's tough to get past, especially on the Republican side. The largest political party in New Hampshire is the politically non-aligned, the independent voters, as you and I would call them. Um, and there's also, I mean, keep in mind... The, the Democratic side isn't really a contest. The DNC right. changed the rules, so there are no delegates at stake in New Hampshire because New Hampshire decided it's going to have the first primary. It, it is in the law that it has to go um, a week before any similar contest, and it's going to follow the state law. The Secretary of State up there is doing what he, what he, what he has to do, frankly. Um, the Republican state legislature, the Republican governor, they were never going to change a, they were never going to sign into law a change of the state um, election rules um, to let them go anything but first in the nation. Um, so, I mean, you've got a lot of Democrats who are going to have to ask themselves the question whether they um, play in the Republican primary, stay home, um or do a write-in for Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not on the ballot in New Hampshire. Joe Biden decided to play by the rules of the DNC, a DNC of his own making, um, and maybe suffer the you know delegate devoid primary, um, but suffer the headline loss nonetheless to Dean Phillips, the congressman who is running right. against him, um, and it, it, it is on the ballot. There. He's on the ballot. Um, it's a ballot that has no delegates and no consequence for the nomination, but it does have consequence for um, the headlines we write. I mean, it's we every can every campaign cycle has one of these um, freak out moments of this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I remember traveling with Rick Santorum in 2012 when he won Colorado. Missouri and Minnesota the same day, but it had no delegates. But nonetheless, it was a it was a three day, it was a three for um, loss for Mitt Romney. Um, had no real consequences for the for the nomination, but it was a headline play. Um, this this is what we're looking at in New Hampshire. Um, does Joe Biden want to start the count the the nomina- the renomination cycle with a um, a thwack to the face? Uh, at the hands of Dean Phillips in New Hampshire, right. or does the Biden campaign launch a, uh, you know, secret, not so under the radar write-in campaign? So that's going to be a huge factor when it comes to how someone like Nikki Haley or Chris Christie can play if Democrats want to play in the Republican primary um, and cause some, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh-style Operation Chaos. Let me ask you about Chris Christie, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on Chris Christie, but uh, you know he, he seemed more aligned with Nikki Haley uh, in in this last debate. Um, he's still hanging in there. Is uh, New Hampshire his Waterloo? Is do we expect him to throw his uh, support towards Nikki Haley? What is going to happen to Chris Christie? Well, that's the question uh, Mary Pat Christie wants to know too. Um, his wife, who is, <laughs> you know, every bit his intellectual equal and his co-counselor, um, 
I, I, I admit a big fan of Mary Pat Christie here. Um, I think you're, you're watching an alliance form really um, not so under the radar that Christie, Christie wants to win New Hampshire. It's, it's a, it's a badge. He thought he could have won in 2016. Um, He certainly had some of the best campaign talent in the state behind him, but the same was true of Rudy Giuliani in 2008 um, that you can, sometimes just be mismatched to a moment. Um, it's, it's what Tim Scott referred to when he dropped out as not no, but not now. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what we're going to be watching. If, if Chris Christie were to endorse anyone, um, it, it, it's a natural fit for Nikki Haley, a fellow governor um, f- with a national profile, some pretty good national security credentials, um, who just does not want Trump and the evolution of Chris Christie from Trump, you know, I mean, he was planning the entire Trump transition. Um, right. Right. <laughs> and then Jared Kushner, who has just the petty grievance against Chris Christie for having sent his dad to the federal penitentiary, um, on corruption charges. Um, Jared, uh, tossed the entire cabinet awaiting in the trash and unceremoniously exiled him. So there is a, um, there's a lot of, um, grievance between the two camps. Um, and Christie has made his last say, you know, two years of his life, um, publicly trying to thwart, um, any return of Trump and probably the last six years of his life behind the scenes, um, to the same cause. So staying on the presidential uh, election uh, for just a few more minutes, talk about the role of Liz Cheney. Obviously, a book comes out. She's uh, all over the airwaves uh, saying, you know, this has to be an independent Democratic-Republican coalition to oust uh, Trump or to block Trump. Uh, talking about perhaps a third party uh, candidacy, um, where does she fit into this landscape? You know, I, I I've spent a lot of time thinking about this in the last two weeks, and I'm not sure that we know. We've never had a third party presidential candidate actually matter. Um, as, as we all point to Ralph Nader, we all t- point to Ross Perot. Ultimately, the political scientists have concluded they were not the huge factors that we all thought they were. The bigger problem, like for instance, in 2000, wasn't the Ralph Nader vote. It was that Al Gore didn't win New Hampshire. That had Al Gore won New Hampshire, Florida wouldn't have mattered. That there's always a logical pivot away from the um, blaming the third party candidate for someone else's loss. That said, Liz Cheney is a more credible vessel for the true conservative party in the the true conservative voices inside the Republican Party. I mean, no one's going to question whether a Cheney is sufficiently conservative. Um, yeah, the Ronald Reagan, uh, George W. Bush, uh, you know, Daddy Cheney, uh, that that branch of the party, right? Yeah, the Darth Vader Cheneys. Um, and, you know, I mean, she was in the W George W. Bush State Department. She is a very hawkish and credible member of the Republican foreign policy establishment. Um, her Middle East credentials are unrivaled. No one, no one is questioning her bona fides there. Um, but... Her out there, out here, causing trouble, making noise about a third-party run, really is. It might be noise. It might be. It might be weaponized in a really troubling way that could help inadvertently Donald Trump, um, because if if she's a credible alternative to Trump and a credible alternative to Biden. There are a lot of Democrats who really aren't sure about Joe Biden and watching him the last few months um, as, as we put together our person of the year package um, and estimate, you know, trying to figure out where he fits in the power dynamic heading into 2024. 
there, there are reasons to be concerned about Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee. And if you're someone who just wants government to function, perhaps not function with two octogenarians as your only two, two alternatives, um, Liz Cheney might be a factor. We, we just don't know. And then you've got, you know, the third um, um, other, you know. Robert you, Kennedy you, Jr.? You've got that. You've got no labels out there with ballot access and thinking about putting a nominee forward. I mean, you, you've got some real – in a, in a race that, you know, ultimately might be, end up being decided by fewer than 100,000 votes in three states, you've, you've – every little bit of gradation can end up mattering. And if Liz Cheney starts peeling off women, um, that is a real – serious problem, not just for Republicans, but also for Democrats. I mean, white women were the entire margin of Donald Trump's victory the first time. Let, let's talk about a scenario, though, with Liz Cheney and Robert Kennedy Jr. out there as as independents. Um, I assume that further complicates this, the, the landscape and, and the picture. Yeah. And it's, it's a question of whether they have ballot access in what states. I mean, we're, we're quickly running out of runway for some of these states to figure out what what the ballot actually looks like because it's you know the republican party has a guaranteed spot the democratic party has a guaranteed spot but does a third party fourth party even fifth party uh, player end up with um ballot access i mean we've also got jill stein uh out in the wings i mean we've 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 got all these minor um nuisances in in terms of the big parties thinking but if you start getting you know 40,000 votes that can cause a headache here real quick multiplied across a couple swing states looking at the polls recently and and reading your column and the the DC brief and and I want to get to plug that here in in, in a moment um Democrats and and are losing uh, youth vote. Everybody's losing youth vote, I should say. But Democrats, it's it's important too. Uh, they're losing blocks of black votes, uh, African American votes, and certainly uh, Latino votes in, uh, uh, across the the country. Um, how important? Is that is that something that's a blip now and will turn around as we get into the meat of the campaign? Where do you see that going? Is that something you have your eyes on? Yeah, and it's something I've been trying to get um, people to pay attention to, that there is a real bleeding of youth vote, and especially among young voters of color. Black men under 30, for instance, have I, – I've the, there's a great project at American University focused on – this exact question, um, and that young black men, especially, have found le- have have proven less reliable and loyal voters to the Democratic Party than party elders are willing to admit. That everyone I talk to just keeps saying, "Oh, they'll come home come election day." Well, what happens if they don't? What happens if they one don't come home? If they stay at home, stay home, <laughs> or if they decide there is something appealing about Donald Trump, and there's you, you watch these focus groups among young black men under thirty, and they see there's a parallel there with what white evangelicals are doing. That there's a prosperity gospel delta here by saying, "Okay, we like him. He is," and the, these are their words. He's a baller. He's a player. He's got he's got game. And they all see aspirationally wealth that they could do themselves, that they could acquire themselves, that there is an aspirational um, element of, okay, this guy is straight up thug. And that is, in their words, something to be admired. And you know what? You can understand where they're coming from, that this is a guy who feels the system, they relate to him, that the system is rigged against them the grievance, the structural racism, structural economic discrimination. And here's a guy who's fighting back and winning. You can understand where that has an appeal. 
Donald Trump is terrible at selling this um, actively. Um, I mean, his Blacks for Trump coalition is woefully under, um, how do I put this? Under, under considered, um, ill, ill, ill defined, ill designed. Um, I, I, in invariably you end up with some tone deaf, where my blacks at, um, question at his rallies. I was out in Wisconsin with him last year, uh, outside of Milwaukee, about an hour outside of Milwaukee, to the West. And he, he tried to do an African-American outreach part of his stump speech. And it just, it, it, it backfired spectacularly, um, in a way that you you could even see his, um, you, you just watch the staff. They were all just trying to crawl into a hole and pull in the comments after them. They looked at their shoes and shuffle, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, that said the African-American nominee for Senate there proved one of the most disappointing, um, recruits of the cycle. Um, Donald Trump had nothing to do with that. He just, um, Mandela Barnes just ended up not proving worth the hype, um, which, you know, as someone who spent a lot of time with him out there, um, made, made me look very foolish when I submitted my expenses for the end of the year and tried to ju- had to justify why I spent money covering campaigns. <laughs> but um, such such is life of a political correspondent. Um but you know, you are on to something that there is a dis- disaffected um, persons of color, voters of color um, problem facing the Democratic Party. The only thing that's saving them is Republicans are so bad at trying to take advantage of it um, that it's tough to try to convince voters that that is a more natural fit for them. At the same time, institutional Republican um, activists, players in the party are trying to disenfranchise them by with so-called um, voter integrity projects yeah, right. uh, that kick specifically persons of color off the voter rolls and make it more difficult for them to cast ballots. So with with this, we may not see just a uh, switching necessarily from uh, Biden to Trump with these voting groups, but we might see a massive stay home. Uh, you know, we don't give a damn. You know, it's 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 not our fight kind of approach, correct? Yeah, and that is actually really uh, that's a threat broadly to those of us who um, believe democracy matters and participation matters, and that who shows up um, strengthens um, us as a nation. <clears throat> that if they if these voters end up tuning out, that's a real problem for the. Um, legitimacy of these democratic institutions. Um, and I, you take a look at, I mean, just, I was looking at the numbers in Ohio, um, persons of voters of color in Ohio, um, are under registered and they don't show up. And I mean, it, you have to go back to 2012 with the Obama reelect to actually have a true buy-in from voters of color on a presidential year election. It's really been um, to the shame of the Ohio, um, both parties, um, the Ohio Democratic Party, the Ohio Republic, Republican Party of Ohio, that they've not been engaging in voter registration, um, voter participation. And that is not something that you can turn the key on, say, Labor Day of an election year, and expect to have any credible buy-in. It is a systematic um, recruitment and engagement that you need if you're going to have any sort of legitimacy um, as an elected leader. And it, it really does um, basically, it, 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 it signals to these voters that, yeah, we only care about you that last 72 hours of a campaign when we do the souls to polls um, busing, um, which legitimately it's a busing operation um, on, on, you know, harkening back to the civil rights era where, you know, you come out of church, you get on a bus and you go to a polling, an early vote station. Um, and I mean, you, you talk to civil rights leaders in any of these swing states, they find it as offensive as, as utilitarian um, 
that it's, it's it, you're basically voter harvesting and taking advantage of these individuals um, only when you need them. And the other, you know, three years, 51 weeks, um, you don't, you don't engage with these voters and just assume that they're always going to be on your side. It's, it's a problem for both parties, frankly. Let me jump to uh, some, <clears throat> excuse me, some issues. Um, obviously, the Democrats have uh, sometimes artfully and sometimes not tried to uh, identify with the abortion issue, um, contrary to uh, most Republicans. Uh is is we see Trump trying to straddle the fence on that issue and quite frankly not very effectively where do you see uh, abortion and women's reproductive rights on the horizon here in, in the campaign you know i i spent some time considering this in virginia it was the first um it, it was the it was the most competitive race this calendar year. Trying to figure out just what was in play, and you just saw, you know, there's a really potent argument to be made um, against Republican overreach and restrictions on abortion rights. Um, I, I think Democrats have, in large part, been able to identify this as a, as a motivating wedge issue but they're 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 assuming a monolith in a way that could end up backfiring um at a national scale the the 2022 midterms um were our first real um test of this in a in a post dobbs world um and it really crushed what was what was expected to be a red wave it was supposed to be a rep- big republican year right. history history predicted it, but it ended up not being there. Um, His Democrats were able to artfully construct a reality in which all Republicans were against abortion rights. Trump is the unique individual here on this because we don't actually know what Donald Trump truly believes when it comes to abortion rights. He's been all over the place. He has. He has promised this. He's promised that. He's winked not that. I mean, I mean, this is an individual who fundamentally does not have an ideological core. It is all opportunistic and, um, you know, it, it's all conditional um, based on what the opportunity in front of him is. The underlying problem for Republicans who truly do not want abortion rights to exist in this country, um, who had a huge win with Trump's Supreme Court nominees voting to overturn a half century of Roe precedent, is do they trust him to keep doing this? Do they think he's actually sincere in his belief? Or do they think if he sees the winds shifting, whether he'll go and start, I mean, he could end up with another one or two Supreme Court nominees um, if he if he's returned to power. Right. Same with Joe Biden. Same with Joe Biden. But right. where do where do those seats end up going on the abortion issue? I mean, it's I mean, for as long as I've been covering politics, as long as you've been practicing law, um, for the most part, um, abortion rights have been kind of a settled issue, and it's a side it's right. a side um, conversation. That appeals to just the fringe, because yeah, Roe Roe was decided, and we're 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 good. Um, yeah. and there, there was a foundation perfect. there uh, of of Roe uh, uh, doctrine. Yeah, but now I mean we're going to start following the dominoes of a post Dobbs post Roe world. Okay, is a Burgerfell now in play? Where does Planned Parenthood v Casey fit in this? Like there are a lot of really scary scenarios. Well, you uh, go back even to the uh, early birth control cases. Yeah, uh, back in the sixties. Yeah, I mean, is Griswold v. Connecticut now in play? I mean, these are 
questions that, I mean, you and I had conversations about in the early 2000s right, as theoreticals. Right. Now they're, they're real, Tom. I mean, do you have, I mean, I mean, I, I, I was covering this week um, as a senator from uh, the South who held up, a, you know, more than 400 military promotions over the question of whether military officers, mil- members of the military, could cross state lines to get abortions. Tommy Tuberville. Yeah. I mean, coach, Senator Coach, um, whether he was. Football coach of Alabama. Yeah. Whether Senator Coach would uh, let let military promotions happen in the absence. I mean, he held up more than 400 for more than a year over whether military members could cross state lines to access abortion care. I mean, it is. We're now in this era where abortion is actually on the table and it's, you know, you, you talk, you, you, you talk to female voters, you talk to women who are swing voters in the selectorate, things get real animated real quick. And this is no longer a hypothetical in a com in a constitutional law seminar. It's, you know, okay, do I, am I forced to have my fifth kid because I, when I accidentally get pre- get pregnant, um, without purpose, um, in my forties that there, there is, this is now real and that, you know, scares voters and animates them in a way that, you know, Obamacare never did. Well, let's jump into some international, uh, political issues as they pertain to the presidential election. And let's talk about, uh, the, uh, problems with Israel and, and uh, the Palestinians and Ukraine funding. Um, uh, what is going on with this? Where is that going to play out? It seems that Joe Biden's getting drawn, drawn and quartered. Um, are the Republicans all in one camp on this? Where do we stand? So there are a couple ways to look at what we're seeing out in the foreign aid budget here. And keeping in mind that we do run into a government shutdown um, early next year over this. Um, and, and this is going to be right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. And, you know, let, let's take these as separately as we can. That there's generally an accepted understanding in Washington that aid to Israel is is going to have to um, get across the finish line. That that's not really at risk per se, but there is a growing and unexpected reluctance um, among some members of both parties about whether it should be a blank check for the Netanyahu um, administration, the Netanyahu uh, government in Israel that is a blank check to Israel as defensible as it once was. Keep in mind, Prime Minister Netanyahu, before the um, October attacks, had been working to consolidate power um, to take away um, oversight from the judiciary that, the, you know... Hundreds of thousands of protesters against that for, for a long period of time. Correct. I mean, you take a look, I mean, at the democracy ind- indices... Um, Israel was moving pretty quickly away from um, democratic norms um, and towards consolidated power, maybe even authoritarianism, maybe autocracy. I mean, Freedom House and all of these other affiliated um, NGOs were watching this and sounding the alarm pretty heavily against, you know, whether the Netanyahu regime was actually a democratic partner in the in the region um, and whether the United States was. Frankly, um, apolog- becoming an apologist for um, an emergent autocracy, um, especially when it comes to one, his own power, his avoidance of um, oversight, the rule of law, and his treatment of Palestinians. So, against that backdrop, unlimited and un conditional aid to Israel was becoming more and more difficult to justify. Then the attacks in October happened and there had a rush of sympathy and 
um, empathy and support for Israel. But the way in which is the Israelis responded to the Hamas attack quickly backfired in a way that I had not expected. Um, one, I had not expected Israel to overstep as much as it had and to fritter away its, its, its you know, unconditioned uh, support for retaliation and justice because it went from justice into retaliation uh, to retribution to punishment um, in pretty quick succession. Um, so, so now, though, you've got Democrats that are split between support for Israel and support for the Palestinians, and Joe Biden's right in the middle of this. Right. And Joe Biden, as former chair of Senate Foreign Relations, has a complicated, to put it mildly, record on this. He's publicly been linked arms with uh, Bibi Netanyahu in a, in a way that you know U.S. presidents historically have always had to be. And private, we're getting senses of White House staffers, National Security Council staffers being really uncomfortable with this and having quiet bubbling up of, you know, unsigned letters of um, protest. You, you had the State Department secret cable um, of State Department staffers saying, hey, wait, wait a minute here. Like, maybe this isn't exactly what you, is serving U.S. foreign policy needs. Um, and then, you know, and it's not just, it, it was easy early on to be dismissive of democratic concerns as, oh, they're, they're the squad. It's the AOCs of the world, the Rashida Tlaibs. Um, but now you, you're, you're, you're seeing some mainstream serious Democrats saying, maybe this isn't where the U S should be in terms of strategic and moral um, support for the state of Israel, or specifically the government of Israel. No one's no one credible. No one credibly is questioning uh, support for the state of Israel. But how it is currently configured, that is that is a that is a legitimate concern among a lot uh, some Democrats um, trying to figure out just okay it, it is 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 the traditional default of the United States a foreign policy establishment is that actually serving us interests and that's a and that's a conversation that's really uncomfortable to be part of right now I want to talk also about how Ukraine fits in this between the funding for Israel and f- continued funding of uh, the battles in in the Ukraine. Um, where does that play politically for Biden or for and or for Trump? And that's the fun part of this. If there is a fun part of death and destruction and war, is Trump and the MAGA-style Republicans have never been comfortable with an open-ended commitment to Kiev. They really, I mean, going back to trying to. I mean, keep in mind, Trump's first impeachment was predicated on basically a strong arm of the Ukrainian government to launch an investigation of Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden. and Joe Biden. So this this is personal for Republicans that they have long distrusted the government in Kiev and have, whether they realize it or not, been propping up Vladimir Putin's um, Russian aggression into Ukraine. It is almost a necessity for MAGA Republicans not to have an open-ended support for Ukraine in foreign aid. But it's really interesting to watch as traditional establishment-minded Republicans, the people who, you know, when Condi Rice comes to town, bang on her door trying to get five minutes of advice from her, as they profess to support democracy in the Middle East in Israel, have caveated and conditional support for democracy in Eastern Europe with Ukraine. So there's just this intellectual inconsistency that is on full display. And I I find it fascinating to watch 
as everyone tries to have it both ways on this. To his credit, Speaker or, uh, Leader McConnell, um, and to a lesser degree, Speaker Johnson, who's still an unknown for a lot of us here in Washington, um, have linked the two together. That you can't support democracy in the Middle East if you can't support democracy in Eastern Europe. And that linkage so far at the moment um, has led to someone, somewhat of a paralysis in terms of this money. But both leaders of both nations are saying in not um, subtle terms, if the U.S. doesn't give, give those countries the checkbook, there's a real threat of loss here. And the investments the U.S. has made, and they're not insignificant to this point, um, would be for naught. And it would end up giving, you know, our professed allies um, in Israel and in Ukraine a real setback, if not a loss. And that is, you know, how do you, it's, it's the question from Vietnam, how do you be the, the, you know, the last person who dies for a lost cause? Taking this discussion to Congress, as you already have, uh, I want to spend a, a few minutes getting your perspective on the new speaker, Mike Johnson, and uh, y- your headlines that the GOP are souring on Mike Johnson already. So I, I want uh, your perspective on that. But, but also, uh, I'm concerned with his linkage to Christian nationalism and and uh, where that's going to go as far as his leadership uh, takes him. You're not alone in your worries about um, Speaker Johnson's ties to, um, I think it's important here to um, insert one more, one more word to that, white Christian nationalism. Okay. All right. I think that that is just a... Um, an area where I've been I've been working on um, in my studies um, outside of my job at Georgetown, um, and that is he's 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 got some allies and some ideology here that could be really dangerous if if you know deputized employed um, in service of a constitutional office that puts him in line for the presidency. He is, I mean, it, it took twenty two days to figure out who was going to lead the Republicans after they unceremoniously booted Kevin McCarthy um, from the speakership. And now he's going home to California at the end of the year as a private citizen. Um, Johnson is a blank slate on which a lot of Republicans were able to put and project their aspirations for the party without fully understanding what they were, you know, employing, let alone endorsing. He is, the problem that they're going to have with Speaker Johnson is all the problems that they had with McCarthy, they have with Johnson. They just didn't realize it in real time that he is, he's, he struck the deal to, you know, keep the government open with democratic votes. He did this ridiculous two-step government funding. So it's the, um, the services part of government, um, health and human services, transportation, housing, urban development, the services part of government, um, have a partial shutdown in January. The security part of government, you know, foreign operations, state defense, they 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 expire in February. So I mean, two tracking the government funding is problematic. And then you can't keep in mind, all of this comes to a head on October one when the fiscal year, federal fiscal year, supposedly in normal reality, uh, they they get a chance to revisit the budget, you know, when early voting is already taking place in a presidential race, right? There is a scenario in which Joe Biden goes his entire first term on kicking the can down the road based on Trump level budgeting numbers and never really gets a chance to get his arms around the appropriations process that there's a, there's a scenario where the entire federal spending apparatus is on autopilot on Trump level spending at operating on continuing resolutions minus X percent um, 
here and plus X Y percent there. That there's going to be there is a scenario in which Joe Biden never gets an appropriations package of his own. Wow. And and that is something that Speaker Johnson could end up presiding over and demanding. I mean, but Republicans are increasingly vocal that, okay, Speaker Johnson, I mean, yeah, they booted McCarthy. Um, The wheels were set in motion at the end of September to boot him. Um, But after just nine months in power, he still gets a portrait and everything, and he'll always be. Uh, I'll always have. To, I will always have the opportunity to refer to him as Mr. Speaker. Um, but there's a scenario in which Speaker Johnson winds up with a similar fate, if not a quicker one. That the Republican conference right now is just frankly ungovernable, um, because the rules package that made McCarthy's ouster with just a single dissent vote. Um, it's, it exists. They didn't change the rules package. So, you know, the, the, you know, the guillotine hangs over Speaker Johnson the same way it did over Speaker McCarthy, that just a handful of rabble rousers get to boot him. And with McCarthy's ouster and the George Santos expulsion, the margin here is negligible. I mean, we're one, we're one, you know, head colder flu um, going around the Capitol from not having any sort of stability in terms of governing. So with all of that, he's, he's put a target on his back, uh, with, with some of his uh, financial, uh, uh, decisions in, in agreements. Uh, how does the Republican caucus, uh, how did they react to his white Christian nationalism that he keeps espousing? For now, they're biting their tongue. You Privately, a lot of members are not real keen on this being the reality. Um, the thing that I find more disturbing is not that they have a problem with the belief system, is that they have a problem that they're going to get branded with it themselves. That this becomes a political issue, not an actual um, concern about, do you actually believe this, sir? But it becomes a party uh, label. I mean, it's it's part and parcel of the party. Exactly. It's the same way Democrats were not necessarily concerned about AOC's Green New Deal or Bernie Sanders socialism, democratic socialism. It's that they wanted they didn't want the bats they didn't want the splatter on themselves. And it's a concern, and I, I hate to both sides this, but it is a both sides have a problem here that they don't actually oppose the underlying ideology that they under they oppose what the political consequences of it will be and there's a tolerance there among republicans for this white christian nationalism a lot of their um constituents endorse um such beliefs and um bigotry um branded better but they're willing to tolerate it in service of political gain. And that is okay to a point until it starts becoming a drag on them. And that is where you're going to see a lot of members try to find some clever way, some novel way to have some distance between themselves and their white Christian nationalist um, speaker. I mean, there's just no other way to phrase it. And Speaker Johnson has not... Um, denounced a lot of his previous beliefs, a lot of his previous statements. I mean, and it's not stuff that, you know, is necessarily taken out of context um, or even gotcha. It's stuff that he's voluntarily put out into the ecosystem. But it also Uh, blends into the anti-gay, anti-women's reproductive rights. It it all goes part and parcel with that. It does. And keep in mind that for those of us who are not steeped in this ideology or subscribe to it. This isn't necessarily a field too far from where the current Republican ideology is that as, as everyone, as I was talking with one member of Congress, frankly, um, right after a lot of the the first wave of oppo opposition research about speaker Johnson came was coming to a head. 
And this member of Congress put it to me in really blunt terms, name one of my constituents who would disagree with this. And that, that right there is how he's able to stay in power and maybe survive. I don't know. I, I mean, I have real doubts about the durability of Speaker Johnson, but, you know, unlike McCarthy, who has his own, let's just say there were serious questions about his character and his conduct right. as Speaker in his personal life. There, you're not going to have those questions with Speaker Johnson. Um, and that might help him survive um, in a way with credibility um, in ways not seen with Speaker McCarthy. Last thing I want to talk about is uh, I have been concerned with the ratcheting up of uh, what I call violent rhetoric um, and what it's doing to the populace, what it has the potential to do to the populace, especially as we go into a more heated election system. Uh, I had those personal beliefs. And then a few weeks ago, I read one of your columns in, in the newsletter, and you shared some of those same concerns. Have those concerns been lessened since you wrote that maybe a month ago, or have they been ratcheted up some? I'm really worried. Um, someone who was here in Washington on January 6th, as someone who attended the Trump rallies in 2015-2016, um, there's this fetishization of violence against political enemies, um, and it's only getting worse and getting more entrenched. Trump this week was asked by Sean Hannity in a very soft softball interview. I mean, it was, it was one degree away from Vaseline on um, the <laughs> camera lens in terms of soft lighting and yes. um, just fawning. Bad lighting uh, and all yeah. that. And Hannity, you know, tried to help Trump. Hannity is an, an unapologetic um advise not advisor but i mean they they do talk um confidant perhaps confidant they the late night conversations and all of that that just you know make me very uncomfortable but who am i um and hannity asked him hey a lot of people are saying you would use your government if you came back to power to enact revenge and exact trauma tell everyone you're not going to do that, right, Mr. President? And Trump just didn't seem to take the, take the gimme and said, no, I'll do it on day one. And that is, you know, normalizing that, normalizing government to go after your enemies, normalizing a purge of government for non-loyalists, that is really, frankly, terrifying because all of the checks on government that we count on the so-called deep state um, as it was demeaned um, during the Trump years, those, the normies, if you will, um, those matter. And that, that there's just some continuity of the permanent federal workforce that is going to stand up and say, no, we're not deputizing the military to seize voting machines. No, we're not doing this this unspeakable, um, you know, th th there's just so much that Trump has put out there that didn't happen because of the deep state. Um, and we, we now know through memoirs and interviews, um, documentaries, um, just how much the, the deep state stood in contrast, in opposition uh, to what Trump thought he should be able to use government for. Um, we're getting to a point where those might be flecking, um, flecking off. Um, and I, I do think there's a, you know, as I said, a fetishization of that political violence um, heading into an election season where, you know, I, I remember the reports in 2012 of, uh, you know, Black Panthers outside Philadelphia, Voting stations were right. enough to send off, you know, panic 
among the political class that is this happening? Is this happening? Is this happening? No, it's not happening as described on social media. Now, you you know, who's to say the Proud Boys aren't going to be doing voter integrity in West Philadelphia? Who's to say they're not going to be there um, in downtown Columbus? Who's to say that we're not going to end up with Oath Keepers in Phoenix? Um, that we're no that's no longer considered as sensational um, because you know. A decade into this um, Trump movement, um, the p- professionalization of a Tea Party movement, that political violence is now considered a legitimate tool. And it's it's something that keeps me up at night and really worries me about the future of our democratic norms and the stability of a system that is predicated on every X number of months, we have an election and we decide who we want to lead us. Um, if, if the person with the biggest microphone and baseball bat gets to hold on to power and decide the terms by which we reallocate power, that gets really dicey and delegitimizes um, our democratic system to a point where do we even need a democracy? And can we consider ourselves a democracy? Um you know, the worries I used to have about, you know, deep pocketed donors um, and, you know, the the super PACs getting to decide the terms of our democracy, those seem quaint now um, in comparison. And I, I think, you know, super PACs and the super rich are the are not even in my top five worries <laughs> when it comes to uh, the political landscape that I find myself covering. Phil, as as always, thank you so much. I, I do want to tell people that I uh, look at and read your DC briefs all the time, uh, and sometimes I argue with you. Sometimes I go <laughs> right on. Yes, Phil, go for it. Uh, but they're always informative and they're always stimulating. So. Thank you for doing that. And tell people how they can get uh, signed up for your your column, Five Days a Week, DC Brief. Of course. Thanks Thanks for the plug, Tom. And yes, we do disagree um, from time to time. And I love that. I love that there is opportunity that I'm not um, always predictable where I come down. I often no. find myself <laughs> hating myself for some of the sympathies I have. But it's important for us to be um, intellectually consistent. Um, you can sign up for it at time.com slash DC brief. It is our political newsletter where um, I put my reporting on page and try to take you guys inside what we're talking about in Washington and what makes us occasionally uncomfortable. Um, that you know, I, I can simultaneously hold sympathy um, for civil rights violations in the DC jail, even when those sympathies are for, say, the January 6th insurrectionists. Um, and have problems with, you know, the occasional um, Joe Biden decisions and often have problems with the current Republican Party um, and the Democratic Party um, and their lack of foresight and refusal to identify structural problems inside of it in service of uh, coasting through the next day. I think it's important for us to bring a rigor to how we cover Washington and some skepticism to our institutions um, that, you know, not all defaulting to faith in the system isn't always what serves the system best. And the DC brief is free. So uh, yes. again, again, the URL where they sign up. Yep. Time.com slash DC brief. Um, and it's entirely free and it, um, Includes links to our other great reporting from my colleagues here in Times Washington Bureau and our political and, unit. And it's stimulating. Whether you agree or disagree, uh, it's uh, intellectually provocative, and, and I, I love that. So next time we talk, Phil, I want to talk about uh, news media being the target and some of the plans uh, being made under the 2025 plan of of the anticipated Trump administration. Uh, So we'll talk about that next time. We ran out of time today.
Sounds good. I don't know what our plans are. I don't know that. I don't know that we'll still <laughs> exist in twenty twenty five. I'm having, uh, you know, what happens when you know whistleblower protections are done away with, and the first, you know, we end up ended up with uh, libel and slander new standards and criminal you know, libel. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. this this is all stuff he's actually talking about. I know. And, and no longer the protections of, of, uh, of public officials, you know, they'll, they'll get get worse. You know? Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm doing a piece, an evergreen piece for the first quarter about, okay, who's the next Vindman? And what happens in a Trump administration when the next Vindman comes forward? That yeah. if there are no federal whistleblower protections, you can criminalize, you know, you know, you can criminalize this. And it's it's really scary. It it really is, and that's a topic for a whole show, a whole discussion between you and me. So we'll plan that for the future. Sounds good, Phil. Thanks again. Of course, thanks, Tom. Today we've been talking to journalist Phil Elliott of Time. We've been talking about what's happening in the political scene one year out from the next presidential election. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hudson at ohio.edu. That's Hudson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everybody.